Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to today, today's policy seminar, The Political Economy of COVID-19, Impacts on Agriculture and Food Policies. I'm Katarla Taylor, Events Manager at IFPRI, and I will moderate today's event. Thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who will watch this recording. We are eager to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please go to IFPRI's website, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, or use the hashtag AskIFPRI. We will come to all of your questions once the presentations are done, and we would like to come to hear from as many of you as possible. So in submitting your questions, please also identify yourself with your name and your affiliation. The economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting pressures on public finances and donor resources are necessitating stark trade-offs among different policy priorities within the agriculture sector and across the food system. In what ways has the pandemic altered the balance of power among urban and rural populations, the state and private sector and across government ministries? Today's seminar will examine how these issues are playing out and, can, and have played out across Africa, in India, Chile, and in the US. We have an excellent panel lined up for you, and I will now call on our first speaker, Johan Swinnen, IFPRI's Director General. Thank you very much, Katarla. Um, I'm really pleased to sit here today to be able to introduce uh, this seminar and this issue. As you know, uh, or as you might know, I have done a lot of work on, on political economy in my, uh, in my career, and I'm uh, very much intrigued still today by these issues. We have a packed agenda today with many experts, so I will keep my opening remarks to identifying some of what I see as the key issues, and I look forward to learning from uh, the speakers on this panel. We have a wide regional focus, as uh, Qatar already identified. We have uh, people who will speak about rich country responses to the COVID-19, particularly Joe Glauber on the, uh, on the US policies, um, on emerging countries in Latin America, and on developing countries in South Asia and in Africa. Now, why are we having this seminar? Now, we know from research on political economy that changes in welfare and incomes, the distribution of income typically affects policies because it affects uh, the pressure, the lobbying that people do, the pressure that's put on the political systems, people's political reactions versus what they, uh, people can invest in political act actions rather than invest in economic actions. And these things are typically affected by big shocks in welfare and in the environment. This can lead to the changes in existing policies. For example, tariffs can be reduced or can be increased. Subsidies can be changed. It can lead to the introduction of new regulations or it can lead to the removal of um, altering or existing regulations. So we should expect changes. Now, the nature of what is happening, the nature of the shock matters as well. We can have gradual changes and something like one could argue that climate change, for example, is something that moves more gradually compared to the COVID shock that we have today, which really is a shock to the health system, to the economic system, and as we will argue, or as I will argue, to the political system as well. Now, in, we know that COVID is affecting the, uh, the economy and the food security of the people in two ways. It affects both um, the, the people's welfare and the food security to the impact 
on the economy by declining incomes, declining employment, etc. It also affects them by disrupting our food systems, our value chains. And so both of these effects will also play um, probably a role in the political scene. And so shocks are crucial for trade. Why are shocks uh, important compared to gradual changes or why does it matter? Because if you want to have a big change, I mean, going from one policy system to another, uh, for example, that typically requires a shock to trigger, if you want, the political economy equilibrium. We know that from several cases, probably one of the, the earliest, which is well described, is in the late 19th century, there were, uh, when industrial production of food took off, uh, industrial production, the industrial revolution was possible with scientific innovation, but these scientific innovations also led to the capacity of uh, scientists to actually analyze what was in the food in the industrially produced food. And what did they find? Well, there was all kinds of things in this industrially produced food, which was not supposed to be in there. It was sometimes cheap, cheap substitute, but sometimes it was poisonous as well. This triggered, it really shocked the, the, the political economy and it led to a whole series of food safety regulations throughout the world. This is the first set of food safety regulation at the late 19th, early 20th century. In Europe, uh, um, Another major shock to some of these regulations occurred in the late 20th century. In the 1990s, we had several food safety crises taking place in the EU. And this again shocked the system and led to a whole set of new food safety legislations. And a lot of these are affecting global value chains today. Another example is what happened in 2007, 2008, when food prices spiked on global world markets, affecting consumers and producers throughout the world. This again, uh, shocked the political system and led to big changes in, uh, in agriculture and food policies that followed in the years afterwards. Today is a bit different, I think, or significantly different from uh, 2000, from the price packs in the 2000s for a number of reasons. Well, what is similar is it also shocks the system, the political economy system. But in 2007, 2008, and the years afterwards, um, producers and consumers were affected very differently. Consumers were hurt by much higher food prices, but many producers actually benefit. Today, it's different because both producers and consumers are negatively affected generally. Today, we also have a much more bigger disruption of our food system, which we did not or had to a lesser extent in uh, the late 2000s. And this has caused an increase of attention to things like food systems, the sustainability of food systems, the resilience of food systems, etc. And these issues have um, been rising on the on the priority list on the policy agenda in uh, already this year, and I expect in the coming years as well. It also brought back an issue um, to policy discussions on the role of global and local food supply chains. And this has been something which has been part of the, uh, the debate, the policy debate for a long time, but clearly what's happening with COVID is raising this issue again and bringing, back, bringing it back to a higher level of, of policy attention. What we have seen similar um, initially in terms of policy reactions to um, between the, the 2007-2008 chain um, food price spikes and, and today's effect is that is the policy reactions in terms of trade policy. Initially, several uh, food exporting countries had imported, introduced uh, export restraints, just like they did in 2008, 2009, etc. What's interesting is that the policy community has responded to that very strongly on this. For example, um, IFRI researchers and, and Joe Glauber, who's going to speak, took an important role in this, but also WTO, FAO specialists said, 
all said, well, this is a very inefficient way of dealing with this and, and please uh, stop with that. And there's been an, an interesting response from the policy community or say from policymakers all over the world that many of these restrictions have gone. Um, there's also been a lot of uh, trade policy interventions which have been introduced for health reasons to control um, basically people's people moving or, or commodities moving, et cetera, for health reasons. And Daniel Resnick, for example, has done a lot of work documenting these things in Africa and the impact that these have had. Um, as I said already, um, shocks typically create openings for bold reforms of policy, much bigger, much more important ones than is possible otherwise. And so today I, we will hear from a, a number of specialists to discuss how this has happened or not happened in their country. And so I'm really looking forward, for example, the intervention by uh, Ashok Gulati, because Ashok has been arguing that the important reforms which have been introduced this year in the past months in India, and which uh, people are speculating may have a, a major impact on agricultural growth in the future, were only possible because of COVID-19. Well, I'm going to let uh, Ashok make the point himself. Okay, this is how I interpret some of the things he's been saying. On rich countries, see in the EU, there are two major uh, policy um, innovations being introduced this year. One is the Green Deal, which affects almost all policy making in Europe, and the other one this week on the reform of the Common Agricultural Policy, which affects almost $400 billion, um, which will be spent in the next year. And so the question there is, did COVID play a role in this or were these just factors which were already there and COVID really did not have that much of an impact? The similar questions, I think, relate to, to what's happening in, in the USA. And this is where Joe will talk about, Joe Glauber, because there we've seen also significant developments in, in policy initiatives over the past year. And so there the question is, was this triggered by COVID or was it triggered by other factors such as being in an electoral year, the conflict with China, et cetera. And we can raise similar questions almost have been happening in Africa and Latin America and um, Carol Surge, Sam Benin and Astrid Haas and Daniela as well will talk about this. So I'm really looking forward to answers to these very important questions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jo. Our next speaker is Danielle Resnick, Senior Research Fellow and Governance Theme Leader at IFRI. Danielle, over to you. Okay, thanks very much, Katarla. So as Yo was alluding to, uh, crises very much create a window of opportunity uh, for reform, but they very much test the ability of governments to manage and reconcile different interests and to weigh off different priorities. And of course, political economy dynamics often underlie the outcomes of these difficult balancing acts, which have become quite unprecedented during the current pandemic. So the subsequent presentations are going to delve into these dynamics into a lot more detail, but my job is to essentially set the scene in which to contextualize each of their interventions. So if we go to the next slide, we can see here we have four different sets of actors. Um, and if we start up on the, the left-hand side, uh, we can think about administrative actors, which are quite key in the political economy process. These can include ministries, decentralized units, marketing boards, other types of government procurement agencies, uh, actors within the bureaucracy. And their major incentive is to ensure that they have resources, particularly in the budget process, and to retain relevance, even as government priorities may change over time. 
On the upper right-hand side, we then have various political actors, political parties, mayors, governors, presidents, legislatures. What they want is to secure power, maintain office, and gain attribution from voters for their actions, for their responsiveness. On the bottom right-hand side, we can think of various societal interest groups, including unions, cooperatives such as farmers cooperatives, activists, and other types of lobbyists. And their goal is, of course, to gain access to these political and administrative actors and thereby influence the outcomes of the policy process. And then lastly, on the lower left-hand side, we can think of various external actors, donors, uh, the WTO, which Yo was just alluding to, various transnational networks. And they aim to provide leverage to, to governments in order to meet their development objectives, perhaps through financial leverage, but they can also offer legitimacy, um, particularly offering legitimacy to the goals of domestic uh, interest groups who are struggling to have their voice heard by their, uh, by their governments. So with this framing in mind, I wanna to turn to what I see as four impacts of COVID-19 on food and ag policies that have had political economy dynamics. I think first with um, travel bans, border closures, and other types of lockdowns, there's been a lot of rethinking about the vulnerability of supply chains and the role of market, interme market intermediaries, and thinking about ways to make uh, supply chains more efficient. So in some cases, it's led to the acceptance of strong interest groups to new ways of doing business. Uh, we can think of Sri Lanka, where for more than 18 years, they were trying to move the weekly in-person tea auction to an online interface. Uh, but there was a lot of opposition from tea associations and tea brokers. Uh, but with the pandemic, uh, within just a few months in early April, they were able to shift their incentives. They saw the value of doing this. Um, and an online auction has now been established. There's, of course, the other case of uh, India, for example, where there has been uh, some resistance to government uh, reform efforts, where farmers could uh, now sell directly to private markets rather than directly to government wholesale markets at assured floor prices. There's been some opposition from political parties and farmers groups, and we're looking forward to Ashok Ulati to provide us a more in-depth discussion of this fascinating case study. The second major impact of COVID-19 has certainly been with respect to the reduced fiscal space for agriculture. There's obviously some concern that this health crisis may balloon into a debt crisis, especially for the more than 30 low-income countries that are at high risk of debt distress. And since this crisis is also affecting development economies, it's undoubtedly going to restrict the amount of donor resources, including for agriculture. So this suggests that fiscal resources for the sector could be severely constrained. And so Sam Bainin is really going to look at what this means um, for agricultural investment goals uh, under the AU's CADAP commitments. And Carlos Ferche will look at some of these similar dynamics in the Latin American context. With scarcer resources, of course, their distribution becomes more intensely contested and stronger interest groups typically are more likely to benefit. Um, and here, Joe Glauber is going to discuss this more with relation to the US and the massive levels of subsidies uh, that farmers have received here. The third impact of COVID-19 has very much been um, an increase in food aid. Food aid has been the main social protection response we've seen many governments take to support the food security, particularly of the poor. 
but there has been more than 600 protests globally um, about food and food relief efforts, particularly around the targeting, um, quality and quantity of these efforts. Um, a lot of the food aid distribution has been politicized in many places. In Bangladesh, for example, outrage over the corruption in food relief distributions um, perpetuated by local political elites. In other cases, there has been concern about the political attribution um, of this food relief distribution. Uh, members of parliament uh, for the opposition in Zimbabwe, for example, have been arrested for distributing food relief to the poor. Uh, similar dynamics have occurred in the Gambia. And then in Honduras, uh, quite a lot of protest over police that food aid is being just distributed to allies of the ruling elite. These trends can be particularly pronounced in countries that are facing elections during this pandemic period. And this is uh, where Astrid Haas's interventions, particularly on Uganda, um, will be quite illuminating. And then I think fourth and finally, I think what's quite different about this, this crisis um, is that uh, unlike uh, the other three points I just mentioned, we have seen those other three dynamics in previous crises, both uh, financial and food crisis. But I think that what's different here is that we're seeing more weight to new actors in the policy sphere, especially renewed attention to micro and small enterprises and informal actors, particularly informal food traders. Um, informal food traders are typically quite marginalized in their political space. Um, in many cases, there's regulations against street vending and hawking. But the pandemic has definitely put their vulnerability into stark light. And we have seen countries from Burkina Faso to India instituting social protection to particularly support this group. In places even like China, there's been a rethinking of regulations against street hawkers and a policy to support a street vendor economy. So in this way, we can see that the pandemic has created some windows of opportunity for new interest groups um, to, to gain more recognition in the policy sphere, especially supported by transnational civil society networks that lobby on, the, on behalf of informal labor rights. So with this framing, I'm going to turn back to Katarla so that the panelists can provide us with more details on these different issues. Thanks very much. Great, thank you, Danielle, for setting the scene for us. I will now call on Ashok Galati, InfoSize Chair Professor for Agriculture at the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations. Ashok, over to you. Thank you very much, Katadla, and a pleasure to be a part of this distinguished panel. Uh, what I would like to put on the table is from where you started, that such global shocks offer a window of opportunity for major changes. Everyone knows how India took a different direction in economic reforms in 1991. That was not a global crisis, it was Indian crisis and it gave a different shape to India's economic policies. But the COVID has given a global shock and to feed a country of 1.38 billion people, it was a challenge. At the notice of just four hours, the prime minister announced that everything is going to be shut down at midnight. And the issue that was on 24th of March and from 1st of April, massive procurement season starts in the country that has to feed the country throughout the year. We have one of the largest public distribution systems in the world. 800 million people get highly subsidized uh, food, basically meat and rice. So wheat procurement had to start from 1st of April. 
and there were concerns of social distancing because thousands of farmers throng into those so-called APMC markets, which are regulated by the government. And if people come there, they will catch uh, all this uh, COVID virus and there could be a disaster. So government said, we are suspending the APMC laws and we are asking anybody can go to the farmers directly or any other place to buy so that you don't create chaos in those APMC markets. And that particular experiment as a pilot turned out to be extremely useful. India landed up procuring 39 million tons of wheat during the lockdown period when all things were shut down except the uh, essentials. And government found that this system works better than the system they had. So they issued ordinances to change the rules of the game, what you call in your system administrative institutional reforms. And they said, okay, we are asking now and liberating the agriculture markets, which were more designated farmers and big buyers have to come to APMC markets. Now anybody can go to the farmers. They need not pay Monday fee or taxes and commissions on that. And which count, uh, depending upon the commodity, anywhere from uh, you know five percent to ten percent, even sometimes more. So they found that system to be working much better. Now, when these ordinances were brought to the parliament, uh, they got it through with a lot of commotion and a lot of opposition from many of the you know political parties. But finally, they are the law of the land. Uh, only yesterday, uh, Punjab, one of the states, has come up with its own laws opposing this and trying to say that we want to have a different system because they produce wheat and rice. More than 90%, 95% is already bought by the government. So they don't want it to go outside because they put 8.5% taxation on it, which comes to them. So from the center to the state, it's an issue of uh, more resources. But I consider this particular major change in the Indian agriculture marketing system that has fed the country much better than the earlier system. It will create much better and efficient value chains in the system. And I have compared it with 1991 uh, structural reforms of the country, so-called the de-licensing of the industry. So this is like de-licensing of the agriculture marketing system. My hope is that within three to five years, there will be hundreds and thousands of startups. Uh, you talked about online systems. They are already about 500 startups are in this game of uh, setting up extremely good value chains. So this is to me a transformational step. It will take a little time for uh, the system to pick it up and then show uh, how efficiency can be brought in. And uh, I think uh, India will emerge, Indian agriculture, much more competitive on this ground. Uh, we have remained, despite all this COVID, uh, this year India again will be the largest exporter of rice and quite a bit of that rice goes to African countries. So in a way we are keeping not only our food supply lines alive, but also supporting uh, food security lines in Africa. Uh, so from that angle, uh, I consider this as a major step in the right direction. It has disturbed the comfort zone of many commission agents who used to charge high commissions and uh, some states who used to get a lot of revenue from the central government uh, by putting taxes and 
making actually economically inefficient system. So uh, those interest groups have been impacted and uh, but uh, Indian system, they have not demolished the existing system. They have only offered the alternatives so that two systems, the old and the new will have to compete. And unless they become efficient, one of them will have to gradually give way. It's not going to be a zero one game overnight, but a gradual change will come in. And these laws of uh, bypassing the APMC Monday law, what we call, uh, or what uh, also is the direct contract farming law. Uh, you know, milk in India is a classic example of smallholders. 187 million tons we produce. And this is being produced by all the smallholders uh, of the country. Uh, basically, it's a contract farming that is going on with millions of farmers and cooperatives. So if you have to improve the landscape of this to get the best results, uh, Prime Minister has already announced 10,000 FPOs, farmer producer organizations, uh, an agriculture infrastructure fund of 1 lakh crores of rupees. And uh, asymmetry in terms of information will have to be removed. And there, that's where digitalization of the economy will uh, give much uh, better results. So once you uh, complete in this puzzle the missing uh, parts of it, and then I'm sure uh, in the next three years, you will start seeing very good results and a takeoff of Indian agriculture with better returns to farmers, more efficiency in trade, and uh, overall, uh, I think, good for the country. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much, Ashok. A reminder to all of you tuning in that we will be coming to the Q&A portion of the program shortly. And so you can please continue to submit your questions on IFPRI's various social media platforms. But up next is Sam Benin, IFPRI's Deputy Division Director of the Africa Regional Office. Sam, over to you. Thank you, Katala. If you're in my time zone, it is dawn and still dark outside. But uh, many thanks for joining us for this um, from wherever you are. As you may know or have heard, response to the COVID-19 pandemic has and will result in higher government expenditures or foregone revenue, which impacts the fiscal space for undertaking critical public investment. So my plan is to look at some of the evidence of this in Africa vis-a-vis -vis implementing the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program, or CADEP. Next slide, please. African countries are using or plan to use different fiscal policies to deal with the health effects and socioeconomic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. We can analyze these policies by looking at the different channels, targets, or instruments, as it is shown in figure one on, this, on, the, on the slide. The health sector is fundamental in, 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 in these policies. And so I will not speak much to it, but other sectors too have been targeted, especially the tourism and hoteling sectors, which have taken um, a big hit because of the um, um, lack of, of travel. And several countries too have stated specific support to the agriculture sector, deeming that um, it is important to keep um, the food, food system going. The bulk of the instruments used were for reducing, postponing payment or um, installment payment of various taxes, fees, utility bills, etc. And in some of the um, countries, 
there were specific um, specifications, um, including transfers to the informal business sector, vulnerable households, and those that were, were laid off. And as I mentioned earlier, these policies result in higher government expenditures of foregone revenue, which is estimated at about 1% of, gro of gross domestic products or GDP, or about $32 billion for Africa. As figure two shows, few countries in their supplementary budgets that they put out to combat um, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic have indicated how they plan to finance these um, costs. Although analysis presented by the IMF shows that the fiscal space for, for, doing, for, for managing the cost is very limited as the cost is, is outweighed by the available resources um, for Africa, but also for other countries, especially those in the low income developing as well as the emerging countries, as it is shown in figure, figure three. Next slide, please. This is concerning for implementing the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program um, and also for achieving the goals of the Malabo Declaration on accelerated agricultural growth and transformation for shared prosperity and improved livelihoods in, in Africa. This, as you can see in the figure four, the fiscal space was improved between 2000 and 2007 as African countries reduced their debts. But since then, the, the space has been shrinking as debt has been rising. Africa's debt is now at about 60% of GDP. Consequently, debt servicing or interest payment is high and rapidly rising, which is crowding out critical public investment in agriculture and infrastructure and other economic functions. And you can see this from the charts in, in figure five. So whilst expenditure is rising overall, total government expenditure is rising, you can see that the shares going to infrastructure and agriculture and other economic functions is, is declining. But spending in agriculture is already low, as you can see from the figure, which is less than 1% of GDP per year. And if you, if you add this to the spending on infrastructure and other economic functions, it is much lower than what is spent on um, debt servicing the debt or in going to interest payment. Prior to COVID-19 too, we see that the progress in implementing CADEP and the Malabo Declaration has also slowed down. And so the idea is that with spending on the sector also declining and also on other critical um, investment declining, then to get back on track, in terms of progress in implementing CADEP and also the Malabo Declaration is already a concern. And you can see that many countries that were on track in terms of implementing the program, when looking at the baseline values, really were off track in the second BR in 2019. And you can see that no country actually was on track with respect to the targets for enhancing agricultural investment which includes uh, the government putting at least 10% of, of the expenditures in the sector. And so the COVID-19 pandemic poses a major threat to implementing CADEP. 
Next slide, please. So to close, how can African governments increase the fiscal space and help build back better after the COVID-19 pandemic? The answers or recommendations are not new. They also cannot be overemphasized. But I, let me focus on the first three points on the slide. The main thing here, though, is about increasing the efficiency of spending by reallocating and also ramping up investment in critical areas such as agricultural R&D, extension, infrastructure, and education because these have long-term productivity and growth effects, and that they, will, they can help mitigate or reduce the impact of shocks overall, but also help facilitate more effective and efficient ways of responding to shocks when they occur. If you look at the figure on ODA, you can see that overall ODA has been declining ODA, the um, official development assistance to Africa has been declining, but you can see that more of the ODA is being directed to emergency response, giving an indication that either um, the shocks are increasing over the years, but the idea is to redirect more resources into, into helping to prevent or minimize the shocks and also help fight shocks better rather than um, increasing emergency, emergency response. Another is also broadening the revenue base and increasing the efficiency of revenue collect collection. Here, a critical action is bringing in more of the informal sector into the formal sector, but not from the myopic perspective of just to tax the informal sector, which often when, when we talk about broadening the revenue base by bringing in the informal sector seem to be the case. But rather it is to help support the informal sector to gain access to, for example, the technologies and also the financial facilities in the, in the formal sector that can help them increase their productivity and help them grow and also to contribute more to employment. Because through these, through these avenues is where the revenue base can be, can be broadened and as well as increased to provide more, more resources for fighting the shocks, but also for undertaking um, the critical investment that I talked about, especially in terms of agricultural R&D, extension, education, roads, et cetera. As these have been shown in many, in many countries and regions and consistently over time to, to have the bigger bank for the back in terms of promoting more growth and also sustaining development. So let me end here and thank you for listening. Over to you, Katala. Thank you so much, Sam. Our next speaker is Astrid Haas, who is the policy director at the International Growth Center. Astrid, over to you. Thank you, Katala, and thanks for the invite. Um, so my intervention is going to be from the urban perspective. And what I'm gonna argue is that COVID-19 for urban Africa, including the city where I'm from and where I live, Kampala, Uganda, has played out less as a health crisis and more as an economic crisis. And that has manifested itself 
in food. And that was actually recognized this year by this year's no, uh, Nobel Peace Prize for the, the World Food Program and its role in being able to sort of manage the food part of the crisis. So Uganda, I, I forgot to look at the exact statistics, but we've just, you know, just got over the 10,000 mark for number of COVID-19 cases. And we are still under the 100 uh, mark for the number of deaths. I think we're somewhere around 97 deaths as uh, a result of COVID-19. However, we went into one of the most uh, stringent lockdowns um, that across the globe, not just in Africa, across the globe, uh, at a very early stage, um, just after we had the first confirmed case of, of COVID-19. Now, why has it played out as a food crisis? So as I said, I'm gonna use Kampala as, a, as an example, but there's many other cities in, in, in Africa where this is illustrated in the same way. And the reason is the structure of the urban economy. So in 2016, the World Bank together with the Uganda Bureau of Statistics undertook a census of informal sector firms. Now the informal sector makes up the majority of firms in Kampala, but also in many other African cities. And they found at that time that these firms are really small. In fact, nearly 60% of them were single person businesses. And already in 2016, 93% of these informal sector firms that they surveyed were operating at or just or very close to the poverty line. So what happened in lockdown? Well, in lockdown, they weren't able to earn any income because most of these firms are in the service sector and most of their, their work relies on face-to-face -face interaction and that wasn't able to happen. And so when you, when you lose your income, um, this, is a big, this is a big challenge for many of these firms because further surveys have shown that 60%, particularly of the poorest informal sector traders actually spend their money on food. 60% of their income goes to food. So if you don't have the income, you can't buy the food. Now, Uganda is, is, is you know, this is, Uganda is a very uh, food abundant country. We have, you know, very, very green, but we, we don't benefit from large urban agriculture because we don't have the land in our very rapidly growing city to be able to feed all the people that it needs to feed, nor do we have the tenure that would allow that to happen. And it, you know, there's, there's various arguments pro, pro, pro and against urban agriculture, but in, in our context, it just wouldn't feed, the, the, it wouldn't meet the needs of the city. So we have in the process of, of, of the last couple of months in Uganda already eroded nearly 10 years of poverty eradication efforts. But I think what is most interesting in terms of this discussion is the balance of that, that the rise in poverty and actually the sharpest rise in poverty has happened in Kampala, the main city. And this, as I said, was reflected in increasing, number, increasing levels of hunger, but also increasing levels of child malnutrition, which we haven't seen for a long time. During the lockdown, the government looked at food aid as a stopgap stop measure. How, and they decided that it was only going to be for Kampala. And this raised a lot of political questions because Kampala is an opposition stronghold in, in a, single, in a re relatively single party country. And also there was a lot of MPs who said, but why do they get the food aid when we have poor people around the country as well? And the president came out very strongly and said, well, this food aid is meant to be for the people who've become poor as a result of the lockdown, not the people who were poor before. It was also the case, and it only reminded me when Danielle, you gave your, 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 your framing comments that food aid was only allowed to be distributed by the government. And in fact, you could get arrested and put into prison if you were found to be distributing food aid. 
Now, the challenges with, with food aid in an emergency situation like we found ourselves in are multifold. So there's the, the, the large, rapid large-scale procurement question. There's the how do you distribute safely in a pandemic question. Ashok, Ashok mentioned some of the challenges of bringing large groups of people together. But I think very interestingly, in the case of a, a city and, and this focus on the newly poor is how do you identify the newly poor? These are the ones who are largely invisible in the data. Um, I, in the end, I think census data was used or household, household data was used from, from previous years to identify which areas of the cities were poorest. But again, how do you identify the poor? And who identifies who's become poor? And, and what do they, how do they qualify? And these are all questions that the government had to grapple with in a very intense and, 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 and very short period of time. But I, I think um, one of the, the, the pieces that I wanna bring to this is that the food aid and the sort of stopgap measure that was there is not just about the acute short-term piece. We don't know when we're gonna get a vaccine. We don't know when cases are gonna spike. Uganda just opened its borders again two, two weeks ago. So we, we just are starting to get people coming over the borders again. So we don't know how the health profile is going to develop, et cetera. We don't know whether we're gonna to need to go down another lockdown, but food policies are gonna be core to managing how we are going to, 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 um, to be able to survive this, this current pandemic wave and the economic crisis that are associated. And certain ideas that, you know, I, I want to throw out there are some things to do with the role of, of rural safety nets. So we've seen in previous crises that have been that were mentioned um, uh, in, in Joswin's sort of opening remarks, that often a time when an economic crisis hits, particularly in a place like, like Uganda, people move from urban to rural areas. In Africa, people have a house in the city often and a home in the village. And they moved that way because they can grow their food in the village and they can eat and they can do that. That wasn't possible in this crisis because as in India, the, the lockdown was, was announced very, very, uh, not quite as rapidly as in India, but, but quite at a very short notice. Um, but the question is, you know, even if that had been possible, how do you, how do you transport people to rural areas safety? How do you ensure that surveillance in, in rural areas is, 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 is appropriate? But I think there is something about where in places where social safety nets are, are because of the, the close of the, the limited fiscal space that Sam, Samuel, you were talking about, social safety nets are not, from government social safety nets are not uh, an open option. We think about what safety nets we have. The second is the role of the rural urban, uh, of the informal sector. Uh, Danielle has, has written a lot about this, but I think this has really come to light in this. It's both what their role is in supplying food uh, for the poorest in the city, um, and how do we enable them to do that? And they've always been a very politicized sector, but even more so that now we find ourselves in a pandemic and in, in, in the case of in my own country, as well as in an election year. And the third thing is how do we, how do we make ourselves more resilient as a city and how do we, we build up um, to be able to ensure that the, the process of acquiring food can happen safely. Uh, a lot of focus was on this during the lockdown, but now revenues have fallen, government revenues have fallen. Um, particularly city revenues have fallen too. So who's going to upgrade the markets? Who's going to make them safe? And the final point I want to conclude on is, and, and this is, we've been looking at this in the, in the data. At the beginning of the, the lockdown, it was, a, it was a question of supply and disrupted supply chains. And, and here, you know, I do, do very much commend the, you know, my own government and, and others on actually having pretty quickly managed to get the supply chains up and running again and ensuring that those were running even during the lockdown. But the longer term problem 
and the one that we also see in the data now, particularly as you know, lockdowns have been lifted, and this is again, not only Kampala, but, but for many other cities, is how do we stimulate aggregate demand? How do all those people who haven't been, eat, haven't been earning money for a, a large period of time now be able to start earning money if no one can buy their goods? And therefore, how can they, how can they afford their food? How can they afford the food for their families? And what happens if we have to lock down again or if we have to go into some sort of, of semi-lockdown? How do we how do we cater for them? And this problem of, of, of depressed aggregate demand, I think, is our, our, our much more longer-term issue that we also have to, to grapple with because we are also in a global economic crisis, um, which has its, its further effects. So I started with a Nobel Prize, so let me just finish on a Nobel Prize uh, winner. Amartya Sen was the one who said, you know, hunger is not usually a result of inefficient supply. It's about political constructs that mean what the most vulnerable are able to access and when they're able to access what they need. And I think for me, particularly when we think about urban food systems, that should be the sort of, that, that to me is the crux of the core of the thinking um, as we, we think about the pandemic and what we can learn moving forward. Great, thank you, Astrid. Our next speaker is Carlos Furche, who is the former Minister of Agriculture of Chile between 2014 and 2018, and the former Director of the Agricultural Development Economic Division of FAO between 2018 and 2019. Carlos, over to you. Thank you so much. Good morning or good evening or good afternoon. It depends on where you, where you are. Uh, first of all, I, I will I would like to put some reflections about the situation in Chile and during the final of the presentation, some reflections about other countries in Latin America. Please, next. In case of Chile, the global impact of the pandemic crisis is reflected, of course, in the general uh, GDP situation with um, some low about or six, five or six percent, and in the sectoral case, about three or four percent. But uh, probably the main, main issue in, in the, about the impacts are the increase of unemployment in agriculture is about four to eight, but in general economy is about 15 to 20 percent, and it's a very, very high level that uh, in the case of Chile is the first time in the last 30 years or something. And uh, in the case of the agricultural sector, I think the other consequence is the increase of rural poverty. Uh, the rural poverty and in general, the, the, the poverty in the country has been reducing consistently during the last 30 years. But uh, I think for the first time in this period, it will increase uh, both in general, but especially in the, in the rural sector from 17 to 20 or maybe 25%. And the other issue that I think is remarkable is that for the first time in the last year, the food insecurity will also, will also increase from 3% to 5% according to the last uh, information provided for FAO, it means that about 1 million people, Chile has about 20 million people, 
uh, inhabitants, about one million people will suffer some kind of food insecurity. Next, please. But coming back to the agri-food agri uh, system, I think it's remarkable that during the crisis, the operation of the, of the domestic uh, consumption chains has been basically normal. It is because the agriculture sector has, has been defined as essential sector. I think the efforts of the public support has been oriented to keep financial flows, especially to small agriculture. Small agriculture is very important to provide the daily food that people consumes. And we have a number of public policies to support the most vulnerable families, both with cash transfers and also to distributing food boxes. And I think it's necessary to put one first reflection that is without food or feed, it's not possible to maintain the lockdowns or the measures to uh, protect uh, population for keep uh, for avoid uh, for avoiding the the sanitary crisis. So first conclusion, we need feed. Second, without feed and without health, it's not possible economic recovery. So in my opinion, for the next time, both public health and uh, food support, food production, food distribution will be in a more important level of the public debate on, on the local agenda or political agenda. And uh, Chile has another condition that is an important exporter of fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, I think the main driver for the agriculture sector in Chile is the export sector. So uh, we are now st starting the, the sport season, the more strong sport season. And it will depend heavily on the transport facilities, maritime and air transportation. On the ports operation, I think this is very important because when the crisis starts, the ports, for example, in China, uh, present a lot of problems and difficulties, and it was uh, a severe consequences for, for the uh, exports uh, sector in Chile. And uh, I think we need to pay attention in eventual additional regulations in biosecurity. We have some examples, for example, in, in the next weeks, in the last weeks in, in China, with some export, salmon and other products that I think it, it, it is a threat that some uh, eventual administrative decisions could affect the normal uh, flow of uh, the international uh, uh, export uh, uh, chain. Next one, please. What are, what will be the main issues for the next time? I think like the colleagues in, in Africa have shown that one of course will be the uh, reducing in, in the public resources in general. We will have uh, severe fiscal 
restrictions. So the dispute for these scale resources will be heavy. And of course, in the case of agriculture in a country like Chile, it will be very difficult to keep a reasonable uh, amount of resources to support agriculture and mainly small agriculture. Probably the priority because of the employment priority will will have to construction and services and others. So this is the first problem for the next time. Second one, uh, probably we will show or see some heavy pressure to relax or reduce environmental regulations because of the necessity of promote private investments, public investments to reduce the unemployment levels. So I would like to put attention in this issue. Another one is that uh, probably we will suffer some uh, uh, downturn in demand, domestic and external, and it would affect uh, the price levels, mainly in, uh, in international demand more than in local demand. And uh, I, I, I would like also to remark the, the threatening that we are suffering with uh, some trade protectionism. For example, in this moment in the United States are discussing some measures about very important uh, export produce, production to, from Chile, uh, mainly berries, blueberries and uh, raspberries. So this could be a problem for the next future. And last one that I think we will have a new regulation in terms of public health, health concerns. As, as we know, more of the uh, casualties of this pandemic uh, uh, crisis affect overweight and obese people. So I can imagine that in the next time we will have some kind of uh, new regulations to promote more healthy food system production. And uh, I think we conclude the most important challenge for the future will be the resources, will be the environmental and sustainable regulation for the agriculture sector, and uh, will be trade and protection is about trade and will be new regulations to promote more healthy food system. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carlos. Our final speaker before we come to Q&A is Joseph Glauber, Senior Research Fellow at IFRI. Joe, over to you. Thanks, Katarla. Um, and I'm very pleased to be part of this panel. Um, like, other, or like other countries that we've heard uh, discussed thus far, the U.S. also has been very um, or has been hit hard by the uh, pandemic uh, with a lot of disruptions in supply chain, um, a lot of disruptions with labor, a lot of uh, disruptions caused by the, the quarantines and other lockdown procedures put in place. Um, I think unlike a lot of other countries, the, the US has intervened um, on behalf of producers with some very, very large um, uh, subsidy programs, which I'd like to discuss today. I think that these are, again, um, many of the developed countries have had 
put in place some uh, uh, remedial measures to help their producers, uh, but the magnitude of what the U.S. has has uh, um, done, I think, over the last uh, six seven months is is uh, quite large. Uh, next slide. So uh, since the uh, COVID, over $23 billion has either been paid out uh, or will be paid out uh, to producers um, to help compensate for um, uh, some of the damages and some of the, the, the price drops that we've seen. Um, there's been a lot of hard hit sectors, uh, certainly with, with lockdown procedures, Pretty much no one was driving uh, the cars, uh, their cars, so gasoline consumption plummeted, which also meant things like ethanol production also plummeted. And so corn prices were very low. Um, the problems in the meat processing sector, I think, have been widely reported, and um, which saw higher prices at the retail level, but very, very low prices at the producer level. And then uh, also problems with uh, uh, sporadic problems with. Uh, COVID outbreaks in, in for farm laborers and things like that that have affect fruit and vegetable harvests and, and uh, those prices. So we've seen uh, about $10.3 billion paid out under the first round of this corona food assist, coronavirus food assistance program. Um, again, spread between a lot of crops and not just the, the not just the traditional crops that receive farm program payments, but also go. It's gone out to livestock producers um, and uh, specialty crop producers. So fruits and vegetables and others have received payments. And now uh, just announced over the, uh, about a month ago, and now it's, we're in our second week or so of payments, a new round, which will uh, pay out almost uh, $13.2 billion. So a lot of money. Uh, next uh, slide, if you will. And a lot of this was to compensate for lower prices. And you can see I, I, I've taken this chart from the, the American Farm Bureau Federation, which just tracked futures prices since pre-COVID time uh, to the present. And you can see that a lot of the prices of, of commodities dropped. Uh, and in some cases, very much, um, you know, hog prices down 25, 30%. Um, a lot of crops uh, fell uh, uh, particularly in those early months, March, April, uh, May. But then we began to see some recovery. And the interesting thing to me now is if we're looking at, at least in, here in early October, when these prices were drawn, that, that for a lot of these commodities now, the prices are above pre-COVID levels. And so the, the question is this $23 billion that's now being paid to farmers, at, at least ostensibly to compensate losses, Certainly there were losses in the early part of that period, but now, you know, how much is this actually should we be looking at in terms of domestic support? Uh, next slide. And if you look at over the last, uh, uh, what this chart shows is just uh, the US trade distorting support. This is the measure uh, measurement of support which is provided to the WTO. Uh, the US has uh, uh, commitments to keep their trade distorting support below $19.1 billion. And um, you can see over most of the period uh, up until 2019, uh, those first 25 years or so the w, uh, being in the WTO, our uh, US levels of support have been well below the, uh, the $19.1 billion. 
in 2018 and 2019, that started to pick up. And primarily not because of COVID obviously, but because of the trade war with China and the fact that the, the current administration, the Trump administration gave almost $28 billion in 2018 and 2019. Uh, to, to producers. So if you look at a $28 billion plus the $23 billion that now are being projected over COVID, which will be paid over 2019 crops and 2020 crops, um, we're also talking, uh, that's all in addition to what producers receive under the Farm Bill and, and other pieces of standing legislation like the Crop Insurance Program, which is another 10 to $15 billion annually. And on top of that, there are other uh, uh, aid packages, uh, part of the coronavirus package that uh, protected producers who agreed to pay their labor, uh, continue to pay uh, for uh, labor. They could get loans that were essentially, if they, they uh, paid the, their producers, they, those loans would be forgiven, the so-called um, uh, payroll protection program. And uh, farmers received about $5 billion in that. So if you add all that up uh, and look at that in terms of the, the arcane rules that are, exist to, to classify support and put them uh, reported to the WTO by at least by my calculations, it looks like the US will likely be over in 2019 and 2020. Next slide, please. And the question, so how does, what does that mean by commodity? And you can see in some cases, uh, not only are we talking about a lot of money in terms of say something like corn where uh, if you add up all the amounts of money that are going to uh, corn producers, we're talking somewhere over 10, uh, $11 billion. Um, you know, also in, just in terms of the overall value of production compared to the value of production, the support is quite large. And so the question is, does this stimulate uh, production? Does this uh, insulate producers from, from lower prices that other producers in the world, particularly in developing countries and others who aren't, um, don't have that, this sort of assistance, but are forced to make decisions based on market prices? Uh, does this advantage them? Does this advantage the U.S. in, in one way or another? And I, and I think certainly if you look at the, the imp some of the implications of this, if you look at individual commodities, there are a lot of developing countries which are very large exporters. Um, you can look at, at, say, something like soybeans, where about 62% of the soybean production comes from developing countries. I mean, that, that would include large developing countries or, I guess, um, uh, upper middle income countries like Brazil and, and Argentina. Um, corn, very similar uh, as well. Uh, Brazil and others have become very large corn uh, exporters. Cotton, we know, uh, remember we had a WTO case in 2003 uh, that just was resolved finally in 2014 over the level of support US was given to its cotton producers. And there the, the, you, know, you see cotton support at about 42%. Um, we, again, the US is a smaller player in the world wheat market these days. Uh, but there too, and, and rice, 90% um, uh, of the rice is in uh, largely in developing countries. So all these things are important uh, markets. And I think that that certainly will cause, um, has already caused consternation in the WTO. We've seen the, the two most recent meetings on the Committee on Agriculture uh, questions have been raised about this support. And I think the, the longer 
run issue, obviously, as well. What happens moving forward is if this is a kind of a one-off thing, that's one thing. If this is uh, looks like a pattern um, that will be continued, um, then that may be uh, more of a concern. And currently, there's another coronavirus uh, aid package, uh, a very, very large package being debated in uh, US Congress right now, likely will be done after the election, but that could provide even more support to the sector. So it, bear, it will bear watching. And with that, I'll, I think I'll wrap up um, and send it back to you, Katarla. Great, thank you, Joe. And thank you to all of our presenters for your insightful presentations. Now we have an opportunity to engage with our live audience through the questions that they've submitted. So I'll encourage you to please continue, continue submitting your questions and we'll come to them as, as many of them as we can. Uh, let's start off the Q&A portion with you, Danielle. The presenters talked mainly about formal actors in the political economy, but what about informal political actors like traditional authorities or criminal groups? Have they had any impact on the food policies that we're discussing? Okay, thanks, Katarla. Um, that's a great question, actually, because, of course, yes, we did just focus on kind of formal actors. Um, well, of course, I don't know what's going on globally. There are a few cases where we have seen um, criminal actors um, playing a role. So there have been reports in Brazil, for example, of criminal gangs who um, often, you know, control some of the favelas, the slum areas, um, actually being charged with food distribution and like politicians handing out food, food baskets with their faces um, on them in order to um, be, be recognized for, for having a response to that. Um, there's been other negative cases. There's been um, some cases also in Brazil um, where you've heard of um, kind of militia groups forcing um, markets um, to stay open, even if there have been government restrictions for them to close, um, because some of these militia groups actually get a cut from, from the markets. And so they don't want, uh, they don't want the markets to close down because they will obviously lose a revenue source. Um, so I'm sure there's many more examples other panelists may, may know from their various countries, but those are just two examples where we do see um, criminal, criminal actors also playing a role for good or bad um, in these dynamics right now. Thank you, Danielle. The next question I'll direct to you, Yo. It's coming from Elena, who is a, stu a PhD student. Were there cases for restrictions of international food trade caused by COVID policies? And do you think that because of COVID-19, food security should be more closely linked with self-sufficiency by countries? Okay, um, well, as I um, briefly mentioned in my presentation, but um, there's actually, we have a blog on our website on, on, on the initial reactions and the trade uh, interventions, uh, which uh, Joko authored on uh, the, basically the introduction of trade intervention, trade restrictions in response to COVID early on. Most of these export restrictions has been removed over the following months, also in response to a lot of reactions from, as I mentioned already, from WTO, the FAO, World Bank, et cetera, and, and and the researchers or experts from IFPRI, et cetera. Now, the, the broader question is, should um, food security lead 
uh, to more uh, emphasis on food self-sufficiency. Well, I think, you know, the, if you heard the, the presentations here today, wrote the, the presentation from Africa and from Chile, etc. What's clear there is that the big problem is now, is already now and certainly going forward, seems to be much more the demand side than the supply side. What does that mean? It's the income losses which is hurting most. And so, therefore, I think in anything which is going to make these income losses worse is going to create more problems for food security. Okay? And so that's certainly from that perspective, we should try to uh, make sure that the trade in food keeps going because that's an important source of income for many poor people in poor developing countries. Another point is that I think if you look at resilience now, more looking more on the supply chain side, I think what's important really is, is the, the diversity, I think, of, of potential sources of supply. And therefore, if you want to mitigate the risk going for making the system as a whole more resilient, it's important that you can source from different um, uh, sources. And so I think a combination of domestic sources of supply and international sources is very important. If you're going to focus only on local self-sufficiency, then essentially you're making yourself less resilient, I think, because you will be, think about there'll be, with climate change, one expects to have more local droughts, more local floods, also things like locust invasion, etc. All these things are going to make, depending on locally produced food only, going to make you less resilient rather than more resilient. And then maybe a last point on that is, there's a lot of discussion right now on whether global or local supply chains have performed better, have been more resilient in, in the narrow way, if you want, in COVID. I think the jury is very much out on that. I mean, much of what we know is based on ad hoc stories, on media reports, how things have broken down. I think increasingly the information that we are getting now is that in many cases, the supply chains have been, particularly in medium-term perspective, maybe not in the, in the immediate effects have been more resilient than many people would have predicted. And I think several of the presentations that we heard here today actually are consistent with that. The question is, will it lead to more pressure on self-sufficiency? I think there the answer is probably yes um, in the political debate. And I think Joe's presentation is a very good illustration of that, that it is actually contributing to uh, more support to domestic um, um, sectors, if you want. Okay, I'll stop here. Great, thank you. Joe, did you want to come in on any of these uh, questions? I, I would just echo what Yo said on export restrictions. In fact, we did see a lot in the first uh, three or four uh, weeks in particular. I think at one point, our tracker was showing some 18 some odd countries that had imposed restrictions. But really, those were pretty much gone by the time the harvest started coming in in the early spring. Um, uh, and so by the time, you know, midsummer or so, uh, all, very few countries had, uh, had, were still maintaining any sort of restrictions. So far, far different story than what uh, Yo referred to back in 2007, 2008, or even 2010, 2011. I, and I think uh, uh, I would agree wholeheartedly. I think the, the, these systems have shown a great deal of resilience. Great. Thank you, Joe and Yo. Uh, Sam, the next question I'll direct to you. It, the question is, it seems like African governments are spending far more than they can afford. Should they be reducing their expenditures instead of increasing them? Um, thank you, Katala. Yeah, um, it, will, it will seem that, but if you look at what um, African governments are spending now, 
which is about a quarter of, of GDP on, on average, is much lower than what um, other governments spent in other regions, some up 40% um, to 50% of, of GDP. So what it means is that African government are already constrained in how much they can spend. And so with um, shocks such as these, then it, it makes them put more spending on or take spending away from their critical investment that will drive long-term growth like ag R&D, extension, infrastructure, education, et cetera. So it's more that the government need to spend more, but the question is where would the resources come from? And so some of the issues that I mentioned at the end in terms of broadening the revenue base becomes very, very important, such as, for example, bringing in the informal sector to, to the formal sector to contribute more to the growth prospect, to employment, to job creation, and even the informal sector can bring in innovation and also up their own productivity and, and growth prospects. So that is what will create the fiscal space to allow governments to, to spend more. So definitely governments uh, need to spend more in the critical in, in investment. The question is the resources to do that. Thank you, Katara. Great, thank you, Sam. Astrid, I'll direct the next question to you. In your remarks, you briefly touched on the idea of the rural safety net. Could you expand more on how you see this working to support food and secure urban residents? Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Katala. So I think you know the 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 interesting part of of, of at least the the African urbanization stories that we we see a general sort of circular flow of migration um, in in many places. It's not just you know people move to the city and then that's it. Um, as I said, they often maintain a home and very strong links to to rural areas. And we don't, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm glad the last, the last question was, was directed at Sam because that was a quite, quite a complicated question. But the point is, is that the fiscal space to respond like many countries responded, which was to provide like a lot of, uh, you know, consumption or production support just doesn't exist. We weren't able to do that. So, at the, uh, you know, on the one hand, we did the lockdowns. On the other hand, we didn't have the fiscal measures to support people through those lockdowns. So then, you know, the thinking about the rural safety net is, well, if you don't have the fiscal measures to support people through those lockdowns, how can people really support themselves? And and, and food, as I said, being a very critical issue and access to food is, you know, you can in, in many, not in, not in all countries by any means, but in, for example, in my own country, you know, being able to go to the rural area farm um, being able to, to eat is, is, is a very sort of key critical thing. Now, again, here you have the selection. Pro so, you know, I think we, we've seen there's, there's studies, I think, in Bangladesh that have been carried out and, you know, a small subsidy that, you know, the government could provide to provide transport. Um, you would have to ensure that it's done safely, you know, with all the sanitation measures. Um, you just have to make sure that you have adequate surveillance measures, perhaps through community health workers, to ensure that you don't create outbreaks or spreads of outbreaks in, of, you know, in terms of COVID-19 in, in rural areas. But I think importantly, the, 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 the part about this is that people need to self-select because, uh, as we saw with the, the food aid distribution, being able to identify is a really, really difficult but critical piece and so it's not that you want to incentivize people to move to you know to move to rural areas and then create a stress in rural areas you want it to be you know just enough to be able to ensure that those who need to go and have a place to be absorbed in can go um, but not that suddenly everyone moves from the city to the rural area but I think these are these are these are mechanisms that we see play out anyway in crises it's just that this particular crisis 
as a pandemic, it wasn't a possible mechanism because because of the lockdown. But I think in terms of longer term thinking, how you can support people to support themselves is a really important question um, that that governments need to ask themselves. Great, thank you. Ashok, the next question for you coming from Monique is, is there a risk of elite capture of food production distribution chains? How are small scale farmers going to be protected against elite capture? You know, the question of uh, who is going to build the supply lines, uh, we have a classic example of milk, I said. You have the poultry example. And all these small holders have become a part of those supply lines. There is Nestle's of the world and there is Hudson of the world, which is largest private sector dairies. And they are working with the smallest farmers with two cows and four cows. So I think the Indian model has to be inclusive because the, uh, you know, the agriculture farmer uh, is a small holder. Uh, average holding size is just 1.08. When you talk of the bargaining power, it's not with individual farmer, everybody is going to sign a contract. It is with farmer producer organizations. So there could be a thousand members and so on and so forth. So the experience in milk in poultry does not suggest that there is, uh, you know, sort of a uh, monopoly rent in the bargaining power uh, that has been uh, captured on that front. So I'm quite hopeful. Uh, information asymmetry, if you remove, farmers are quite uh, you know, uh, aware of uh, where the best prices they can get. But there is the other part, which is the government dominated part, which is where the capturing is. And that is where the Food Corporation of India, when they buy, their labor gets six to eight times higher wages than the market wage rate. So this is how you build inefficient structures and then you have to sell it to the you know, poor consumer at a much lower cost and massive subsidies have to be given. So I think this system where the private sector is encouraged will challenge the public sector dominated, which is highly inefficient sector. And that competition will start on this side. So having said this on the agriculture marketing front, I think that doesn't mean there weren't any problems. I'm hearing other panelists speaking about consumers and Indian migrants face the maximum challenge. Uh, more than 10 million migrants uh, you know, went back to their native places. And when the trains were stopped, uh, flights were stopped, the buses were stopped, and they started literally walking or going on their bicycles and so on and so forth. It was a pathetic situation on that front. That led to a major change. And I go back to yours thing that how a crisis can be turned into an opportunity for reform. Country's leadership felt that if you have Russian, but the migrants don't have that Russian card with them, they can't draw when they're in the other state. So from that, the government came up with a scheme, one nation, one Russian card. So you will have post machines with your fingerprinting. You can draw your, you know, uh, entitled uh, subsidized grain anywhere in the country. Now, this is a massive reform on the consumer front, giving him food security when he is mobile in any state. So I think these one nation, one agriculture market on the marketing side reform and one nation, one Russian card for the poor consumer, 800 million poor consumer 
for whom this uh, you know ration which is 90% plus subsidy on that uh, so i think these are the two major uh, reforms uh, that have been uh, taken up thank you thank over to you thank you carlos for you what should be the priorities for agriculture policies to face the impacts of covid-19 and in the medium term after the sanitary crisis Carlos, you're muted. It's okay now? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. No, I, I think we will have a number of main challenges in the, in the next time for the agriculture and food policy. Uh, if we start off the base of that we will not come back to a situation like business as usual. We will need to go ahead in a sort of recovery with transformation. And in my opinion, the main challenges for the agriculture policy and the food policy in the case of Chile, but probably in case of most countries of Latin America, at least South America, is to recover employment, to recover the trends to reduce rural poverty, and in terms of production, to go ahead in a more sustainable way to agriculture production, facing the consequences of the uh, climate change. I really think that after this crisis, we will have in the main agenda for the next time, the crisis of the climate change. And it will be, it will, is having now a deep impact in, in the agriculture sector, uh, in the structure of production and so on. I think a second main challenges will, will be uh, linked to the, uh, to go to more healthy food system uh, organization. In case of Latin America, it's cheaper to consume malnutrition uh, food uh, and to get good uh, food, uh, healthy, etc., is uh, extremely expensive. So I think this is a challenge both for the agriculture policies and for the health policies. And uh, linked to that, I think. Uh, a next discussion about the, the agriculture policy will be linked to, to health and new regulations to promote more healthy food system production. And I would like to uh, remark as well that a big challenge, not only for the agriculture sector, for the whole economy, is to discuss about the tax structure. In my opinion, we will need a very important uh, transformation of our tax system going to a more progressive system. I think it will be in the next time, this year, the next one, uh, a very, very important discussion in, in Chile. But it's also the situation in countries like Peru or like uh, Ecuador or even like Argentina or Paraguay. So I think 
we will have a, a number of main issues for uh, agriculture and food system that we will need to discuss. And it, I am really convinced that it will be a, a, a strong discussion uh, with, I'm not sure, I am not sure what will be the political economy result of this, but I am convinced that we, we need to go very deep in this discussion the next time. Great, thank you very much, Carlos. Danielle, the next question is coming to you from Lillian with PowerShift Africa based in Kenya. Her question is, the pandemic has emphasized the negative impacts of gender inequalities in agriculture. How can we better engender our agriculture and food policies? Okay, thanks. Yeah, that's, that's a good question since we didn't really touch on gender very much thus far. Um, but I think particularly on the food policy side, I mean, I think again, this, this is where it comes to um, the importance of the informal economy because uh, a majority of those employed in the informal economy are women, um, particularly those in kind of the fresh uh, fruits, uh, vegetables uh, sector. Um, and so I think our efforts to try to make um, informal, the informal economy um, more robust as a result of this pandemic, um, considering more ways about how we actually invest in infrastructure, um, including childcare facilities in the market. Some countries do have this, um, and it actually you know, allows uh, women to, to come to the markets and not have to worry about uh, you know, leaving their children at home or leaving them in unsafe circumstances. Um, so thinking about how we can make markets safer, cleaner, um, and also dealing with um, some of the uh, quite complex institutional arrangements that informal traders encounter, um, including both um, kind of complex food safety regimes, um, different taxation authorities that ask them for, for various fees, and also different types of harassment uh, by police officers and municipal authorities. So um, as I said in my earlier remarks, I mean, I think the, the pandemics really uh, highlighted the challenges that the sector faces and hoping that as we're trying to solve a, a public health crisis, that we're actually being um, open-minded to the other types of bottlenecks that this sector has encountered for a long time, in including many of the disadvantages for women working in this sector. Thank you. Uh, Astrid, you wanted to comment as well? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I mean, uh, Danielle has, has said most of the things that I wanted to say, but I, I wanted to sort of highlight, I think, two important points. Um, you, you mentioned it sort of as your, your last uh, remark, Danielle, but it's interesting because um, at least sort of when we think about urban policy, COVID-19 hasn't really resulted in any new policy recommendations. It's mostly just highlighted and, and increased the urgency of many of the things that we've been seeing before. And I think in the informal sector, that is one of them. I mean, you know, not only um, uh, Danielle, as you've really clearly highlighted to support women who make up a large proportion of this sector, but also as Sam mentioned in his previous comments about sort of bringing them into to the formal space as well from a revenue perspective and, and from a, uh, uh, just even being able to, as I said in my comments, sort of to know who they are in the data perspective. The other thing I wanted to just um, highlight, which is interesting in thinking about particularly the women informal food vendors that Danielle was, was, was referring to in relation to this pandemic, um, 
is that there are so often these, you know, the data I was talking about before, there are so often the, the sole employed traders. So I think 73% of single businesses in, in Kampala, single businesses in the informal sector, single person businesses in the informal sector in Kampala are female run. But interestingly, it also helps decentralize food production. So in a, in a pandemic, when you're not trying to get everyone to, to come to one place because of overcrowding, this is actually potentially an advantage we can use of this very decentralized nature of some of, of the trade that goes on in the, in, in, from the informal sector and in the food system um, that could also be explored. But obviously with all the, the, the implications and, and, and the safety nets that Danielle has, has mentioned. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. And so, Joe, I wanted to bring the last question to you. What are other developed countries doing to help producers? Yeah, that's a great question, Katarla. The, there are, as I, I said at the beginning, there are a number of countries that have provided support to their producers because producers have been hit very, very hard by this um, in terms of disruptions in supply chain. I think most uh, of the support that I've seen, um, and a lot of this has been reported to the WTO, um, um, and so it's it's not entirely transparent, but you can get a pretty good idea of, of what other countries have been doing, have been on the order of helping uh, improving uh, transportation sector, improving um, uh, storage subsidies, for example, to allow producers to uh, uh, you know, smooth some of the, the sales of their commodities so they're able to wait until uh, uh, prices recover a bit. Um, again, these are pretty small compared to the, the support levels that the U.S. Have, has provided, but uh, I think nonetheless, they, they are significant and, um, you know, have been mainly uh, aimed at giving producers more flexibility and in the marketing chain in general, more flexibility to deal with the crisis. Uh, great, thank you so much, Joe. And thank you to all of our, our speakers and to our audience for tuning in. We are out of time, but we very much appreciate the questions that you've submitted. Stay safe everyone and have a good rest of your day.